Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew 5, 33 to 48. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what, or what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. So we continue our series in the Sermon on the Mount, and it continues to mess with us if we're really listening to that passage that's been read over us. When we hear those words, what kind of response do we have? Do we speed read until we get through that into something that we like better? Do we water it down and make it not really say what it is saying? Do we dismiss it? I'm tempted to find my way out of this passage as well. But as I've sat with it over the last couple of weeks, I kept having this image in my mind of the passage in Matthew 17 with a, when Jesus is at the mountaintop and the clouds break open and God the Father speaks over him and says, this is my son, the beloved. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. And that made me just draw near and it made me stop and say, I've got to take this seriously and wrestle with this. And so that's what we'll do together this morning. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we do give thanks for your amazing love and grace and call upon our life. The power of your name to work in us in the deepest places and through us into our world. And we do pray for listening hearts. We pray for a willingness to wrestle with your word that as we wrestle with it, it might take hold of us in new ways. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen, amen. So if we look at this passage, the first section 
seems to be just this call to be people who are trustworthy. Someone whose walk matches their talk. Someone who keeps their word. Someone who means their words of commitment. And I think that feels like the easiest one out of this section of passage that we've read today. Like, yes, we want to be honest people. Yes, we want to be trustworthy. Yes, we want to be people of integrity. But in a recent research uh, finding, this is what they said, and it was for folks in your age group, but honestly, I think this would be true of every age group, so this is not an indictment. It said... 75% of the people admitted to lying to, in the last three months, to a parent, a teacher, or authority person. 60% lied to a friend or peer in the last three months. 33% admitted to cheating on a test in the last three months. Again, I don't think that's unique to this group. I think, I think there is an addictive quality to lying. I think it becomes part of our life. It's our way of getting out of things we don't want to do or out of uncomfortable conversations. It, it creeps in to who we are in subtle ways. Nobody sets out to be a hypocrite. No one says, that's my goal, right? But it seeps into the ways in which we begin to walk in community with one another. Those patterns of lying can take a hold of us. Sometimes we lie and we say it's because we're doing it out of care for others, but if we were to do a deeper reflection, it might be that we're actually just trying to not have to deal with an awkward conversation or an uncomfortable truth. Sometimes we find ourselves lying out of habit to conceal or to keep ourselves out of trouble. So throughout, as we wrestle with this passage, I'm gonna give you some questions that we don't have time to like create silence for you to like reflect on. So you might wanna keep the question or if the question hits home, write it down and take it with you on spring break. And allow God to do some work in you. So here's the question. When do lies come out of your mouth? When do lies come out of my mouth? When have I offered a half-truth to get away with something or intentionally mislead or even make myself look bigger or better than I am? When do I agree to something with crossed fingers behind my back? When have I committed to something knowing there's an escape clause and I'm probably going to take it? We have something that we can learn from the um, 12-step community because they take this truth speaking really seriously. And I think our passage today says we should too. So one resource on 12-step recovery said this, in 12-step recovery, the standard isn't occasional honesty or attempted honesty, but rigorous honesty. Rigorous. What does that mean? Rigorous honesty means telling the truth when it's easier to lie and sharing thoughts and feelings even when there may be consequences. This means catching oneself in the middle of a lie and correcting it, even if it's embarrassing. 
I've had to do that. I never lived into like this life of hypocrisy, but there were places where it was just easier to not tell the truth. It was sometimes you get caught up in telling a story and somehow you end up looking bigger and better than you actually were. It's like when you're talking about a conversation and you say, well, then I said this, and it sounds so much more convincing than it actually did when you actually said it, and so much more stronger than when you actually said it. And sometimes now I, I recognize I've a while, for quite a while, been wanting to break that pattern, and it still seeps in. And I have to stop and say, actually, that's what I wanted to say, but this is what I said. And in that, begin practicing being a person of trustworthiness, of integrity. It goes on and says, while it's important to be honest about addiction and recovery, rigorous honesty extends to every aspect of life. It involves not only refraining from verbal lies, but also nonverbal lies, like stealing or cheating. And an awareness of the individual's own fears, limiting beliefs and unhealthy patterns. It requires authentic relationships. Hear this. It requires authentic relationships that leave room for struggle and failures, setting boundaries, and living in accordance with one's own values and principles. When have you lied? When have you misled? When have you spoken a half-truth? And I think part of what we have when we have these kind of questions is an invitation at all times, but especially in Lent, is to hold those kind of questions before God and let God speak into our lives and then have the beauty of praying this prayer that has been prayed by the people of God for centuries, which is, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. It's an invitation to let Christ be formed in you in that very place that you've named that there's this gap between what God has called you to be and who you are. So I'd like us to say that together as a practice. Would you say it with me? Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. This second section is a call really to de-escalate violence rather than escalate it. We can have lots of philosophical conversations about what it means for nation-state reality, but I think first we have to think this through in a really localized way. So it's not something out there that we have to do. So here's situation. The roommate leaves dishes in that sink again. Even though you've told them how much it bothers you and how much you see that as a sign of disrespect, come on, do we have an amen? Like this happens, right? And your response to that is maybe to add some dishes of your own. Like take that, I'll pile back up there. Or maybe you do something that you know drives them nuts, like knock their towel on the floor or something. I don't know what it is, but it is that escalation of relationship. Somebody says something bad about you, and you up the ante and say something worse about them. And it goes on and on. Basically, It's that response we have when every time somebody pushes on us, we push back 
And then if we're caught, we say, they started it. They started it. It began with them, so it's not my fault. So here's the questions. When have I responded or reacted in a way that is motivated purely by how I am treated or how I perceive I'm being treated? And both of those are true, right? When have I responded or reacted in a way that is motivated purely by how I am treated or how I perceive I'm being treated? How do I live intentionally and not just reactively? So important, these questions. But it doesn't take care of this passage completely for us, does it? Let's hear this passage again, because these are hard words. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. The coat was the undergarment. The cloak was like the blanket that they would use even to shelter at night. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. That's some challenging words there. There's something in there. There's something in there about us seeing the evildoer and their name, the evildoer, as more than evil. With the eyes of Christ, that we might see this person beyond all those masks of anger and arrogance and power abuse, but one whose own soul is shriveled, shriveled, is what the word, not shriveled, by the violence. By, and, and you've seen that. When you see pictures of people doing violence to others in like news pictures, what do you see in their face? I mean, it's, it's just horrific what you see in their face. There's something being portrayed in them as they act out their power that says something about the state of their being. And that there's a possibility of disarming this violence. There's a possibility of entering in the life of evil, even the evildoers, that has the hope of moving them beyond this aggression. So a slap on the right cheek would have been an insult made from somebody who then to, to somebody who is in lower status. So this is not a person who has position or power to like tell them to stop it, but when they offer the other cheek, could they perhaps be making a strong statement that is actually saying, as a citizen of God's kingdom, your insult does not define me? Could be. What you do does not make a difference. Slap the other cheek and I am still God's beloved. I am still God's creation. I am still a person of worth. And I need you to see that and know that. Does adding a cloak when somebody sues you for your coat move the conversation between neighbors in a different direction, disarming their anger? Is it possible that going the extra mile gives an opportunity to care for a weary traveler who's insisting with his arrogance that you carry his burden for a while? And you say, I will, and I will go beyond that, disarming the arrogance. 
One commentator said it this way, the centerpiece of this teaching is non-cooperation with harm in all of its forms. That you're not engaging in the harm, you're getting out under the root of it and speaking a truth in the midst of it. I think that's true. And yet, when we, particularly with this passage, um, begin to kind of dig into it and wrestle it and apply it to our lives, there's a word of caution. This passage can be dangerously applied to the lives of people who are suffering harm. We do not get to say to somebody else, this then is what you must do or be in your situation. Does that make sense? One of the horrific experiences of my life was when I was a student and I was a social work major and I was assigned to the district attorney's office um, for the unit that dealt with domestic violence. And because I was an evangelical Christian, they assigned me all the women who came from churches. And I will never forget those women's stories of churches telling them you have to forgive and enter into that relationship again. That is not the application of this passage, friends. That is not the application of this passage. And so we have to be careful that when we wrestle with this passage is to do it together as a community and not lay it on a burden on a person to live out on their own. So hear that in the midst of wrestling with what we might bring into our lives as we enter into this passage. Because there is the whole of scripture when we interpret a particular passage. And we know that there are other passages that call for justice and changing community practices and denouncing evil and setting people free. That too is part of living out the kingdom ethic of love. This passage is not a call to some passive receiving of violence in our lives. It is in fact an intentional nonviolent protest that seeks to end violence. It is this passage that informed Martin Luther King Jr. and his advocacy to preach justice and say no to injustice and also contained a hope for the transformation of a whole society to be a beloved community. Hear this quote of his. Nonviolence is a powerful and just weapon which cuts without wounding and ennobles the man and will add and woman who wields it. It is a sword that heals. Hmm. And so, we pray that we would be people who would be peacemakers, weavers of a new community, people who lean in and find ways of creatively disarming all the places of violence. And we pray, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. The third section is this call to love enemies. And this, I think, is really this culmination of this section that we are to be people who no longer draw these tight circles. And here's the questions. Who's in this circle of who you love? Is it the people you agree with? Is it the people that you call family or tribe or my people? Are there ones that have earned your trust and inclusion? What do we do with those we disagree with? 
Do we shame them for their thoughts and walk away from the conversation? What to do, we, do we do with the enemy? Do we make sure everyone knows this person is an enemy and galvanizes others to join our side? Some enemy lines are drawn by misunderstandings. We find ourselves on different sides of some issues and concerns and arguments that are important and they're deep for us and we make each other the other. We dismiss each other and turn away, throwing word bombs at each other. There is something with this in this passage that calls us to greet one another. Did you see that in there? Greet one another. Turn to one another. Lean in. Listen to one another. Even if you never come to the same conclusion about whatever it is that's dividing you, you might begin to see that person as one who is created by God, loved by God, valued by God, and loved and valued by you. Like we can still be brother and sister in the midst of saying, but on this we disagree. And that is within this passage, this call to increase your circle to love bigger and broader. And it's not easy. It's not easy. But in the name of Jesus Christ, we can do that. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can love across those divisions that happen in all communities and in all times. And then sometimes we discover that someone is truly our enemy. By their own misshapen soul, or maybe their insistence that that line become permanent and they're not willing to cross it. They are driven by desire to hurt or destroy us or shame us. And this is more rare, but real. And we need to name that. But we're still called to love. But it's also with an awareness that this person is still dangerous and harmful. So it's a call to pray for the best in their lives while also knowing for now there are limits to how and when we would interact. Does that make sense? That we still love, but we also are aware of how do we um, interact in a way that cares for our souls, but really also cares for the enemy's soul. Because if they're not given a place in which they can act out their hate towards you, they too are spared that burden in their lives. It's life-giving to both. We are to love. We are to love deeply. We are to love well. We are to love in ever-broadening circles. There's one example that I think was particularly powerful for me the more and more I enter this story. So let's just watch this clip from Les Mis. It's a great movie. (laughs) Just an amazing moment there. And hear those words over you as you have wrestled with the questions that we put before you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I've ransomed you. Jesus has ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now you belong to God. May the love of God dwell in you and may you dwell in the love of God. Stay seated. Let me pray over you. Our gracious God, bless these, your beloved children, 
May your love fill them and overwhelm them. May you grow in them a call into integrity and truthfulness. May you love in them in ways that disarm the evil and the violence of this world. May you love in them that they might love in ways that are contagious around this world. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you for lingering. Mm -hmm.